the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we began our church year last year, that first Sunday of Advent, reading from Mark chapter 13, and hearing about the coming of Christ. Well, now as the church year end is approaching, as our days are getting shorter, our lives are adapting to the cold, and the wind, and the snow, and the darkness, we hear again about the end. We hear again from Jesus in Mark 13, and this chapter of Mark is often called the Little Apocalypse. But apocalypse doesn't really mean the end of the world. It's not necessarily a synonym for a second coming, or for chaos, or for final judgment, or tribulation, or anything like that. Apocalypse, as I said in the children's sermon, it literally means unveiling. It's a Greek word. The Latin translation of apocalypse is revelation. You hear veil in there. It's the removal of the veil. So on a cosmic scale, the apocalypse is kind of like the end of the Wizard of Oz. right? If you remember the Wizard of Oz, Toto, the little dog, rips the curtain. And we see that the great wizard is just a man the whole time. Well, the apocalypse here is that Jesus is revealing to us something about the world. He is pulling the curtain back and letting us see something that the world would otherwise hide from us. And so to begin to see what Jesus is revealing to us and what he's getting at, we have to kind of set the scene for our gospel reading. So at the end of Mark chapter 12, right before this morning's reading, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And so he and his disciples are sitting by the treasury, and they're watching who is putting in the offering in the treasury of the temple. And so they notice that many rich people are coming by and they're throwing in great sums of money. And then they see a widow put in two small coins worth about a penny. And Jesus says that the widow has put more into the treasury than all the others combined because she has been generous out of her poverty. <clears throat> well, that story is an unveiling. Jesus is showing us that what we think we see in the world is not correct. Right, we tend to think about big numbers, great quantities. Those are the important things in the world. Right, in our world, in our world, a rich person who gives a big sum of money to an institution, to a university, they're likely to get his or her name put on a building. That's important. In the reality of the kingdom of God, however, the generosity of the heart is definitive. It's not just about the amount given. And so rich and poor alike both have the capacity to be generous. And in that way, they have impacts on the work of the kingdom. Well, as Jesus and his disciples begin to leave the temple in Mark 13, what we see this morning, we again see a contrast. The disciples point out to Jesus how impressive the temple structure is. They say, look, teacher, what large stones, what large buildings. Well, throughout the Gospel of Mark, there's a trope, there's a storyline that the disciples are clueless. They never get it. They're always kind of dumb. And so they've been with Jesus for quite some time now. They've heard his teaching, seen his miracles, and they don't get it. So here they point out to Jesus the great architecture of the temple. Now, if you've spent time reading the Gospels, what do you expect Jesus to say here? Do you expect Jesus to look at the temple and say, wow, yeah, that's impressive, right? Do they expect Jesus to stand there and all and say, yeah, wow, these stones are really great. That's impressive, isn't it? Well, of course not. 
by now the disciples should have figured out that Jesus is really just not that impressed with the external things of this world. He's not concerned with power and authority and grandeur, the things that captivate those of us who are caught up in the world's way of thinking. In fact, then, Jesus assures them that not one of those great stones is going to remain intact. It's all going to be destroyed, all cast aside. And so this continues to be for the disciples and for us, the revelation that Christ shows us. The difficulty then in Mark 13 comes in the next section. The disciples again misinterpret Jesus. The disciples believe that Jesus says the great temple structure will be destroyed because he's going to build a bigger and better one. He's going to build something greater than Solomon's temple. He's going to build something that will make all of Israel's enemies marvel. And we see this misunderstanding being shared with the crowds because later on when Jesus is arrested and he's standing before the council in his trial, they bring forth witnesses who say, well, we heard Jesus say that he's going to destroy the temple with his hands and in three days he's going to build another with his hands. Well, throughout the whole gospel, the crowds and the disciples, they keep missing the point and here they miss the point again. They keep believing that Jesus is claiming something political, something revolutionary, something in their terms. They believe that Jesus is claiming he's going to physically destroy the temple and physically build a new one. They have missed the unveiling. The unveiling that Jesus is showing us that God is bringing about his kingdom in an entirely different way. With this misunderstanding in mind, they asked Jesus, tell us, when will this be? And what will be the signs that all these things are about to be accomplished? And so we often read that thinking the disciples are asking about the end of the world or about the second coming. But that's not quite what they're asking. Instead, they want to know when Jesus is going to get down to real business. Right? Enough of this teaching stuff, enough of these little miracles. Jesus, when are you going to knock down this temple? When are you going to set up your own building? When are you going to use all of this power to kick out the bad guys? When are you going to be the Messiah that we know you are? And Jesus, of course, never answers them. He doesn't answer them because they don't even understand the question that they're asking. They still imagine Jesus to be the Messiah of their fantasies, not the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And so instead of answering their question directly, Jesus paints a picture for them of what it will mean to be a disciple in the coming age. Jesus says many will come and claim to be the Christ, and that the disciples then should not be led astray. In other words, Jesus is telling the disciples that many are going to come and offer a kind of false hope. Many will come draped in the curtains of the world, veiling the true message of Christ, and they're going to try to get the disciples to believe a lie. He says there'll be war, rumors of war, there'll be famines. In other words, Jesus is countering their false notions of what it will mean to be a disciple. The disciples are sitting there imagining prosperity. They're imagining a time of perfect peace. They imagine a time when they will have status and power and authority and everyone will listen to them. And Jesus says no. Instead, there will continue to be wars. There will continue to be suffering, 
In fact, the disciples themselves will face persecution, trial, death. None of this is what they imagine being a disciple of the Christ is all about. God is unveiling something to them about who he is, about how he makes himself known in the world. A couple years ago, I read an article of a well-known TV evangelist, a televangelist, where he asked his followers for over $50 million. And he told them, I really believe that if Jesus was physically on earth today, he would not ride a donkey. He'd be in an airplane, preaching the gospel all around the world. And so this evangelist, he wanted $50 million for his own airplane that he imagined Jesus would be riding in. Well, if you turn on the television and find any random televangelist, made-for-TV preacher, there's a good chance you're going to hear that same message boiled down. Pray, and God will give you a great career. Right? Send money to me, and you're going to have a flawless marriage. You're going to have all kinds of blessings. You'll have material abundance. Right? And some might even suggest that if you pray hard enough, you might get your own private jet be able to zip around the world as you wish. That kind of message receives a pretty big audience, but at its heart, it's a lie. It's the same lie that the disciples hold on to as they look at and they marvel at the size of the temple. But then again, what's wrong with that message? On the face of it, it seems like God, who is good, who is love, might want us to be materially comfortable. It doesn't seem too far-fetched to think that God would want us to enjoy lavish material pleasures. Heaven's described as a city of gold, right? And I know that we would all feel loved if God gave us our own private jets. What Christ reveals to us, though, is that real power, real joy, real comfort is going to be found somewhere else. Jesus tells the disciples that the kingdom is coming in a way that they're not imagining. The kingdom will be evident not in the splendor of the world, but it will become evident precisely when the world is at its worst. But this we know to be true, because when the world around us is at its worst, we have the opportunity to witness most powerfully to the good news of the cross. We get to tell the world that the Son of God has joined them in their suffering. We get to preach that God has forgiven us and in forgiving us that he's made us new creatures with new opportunities, with healed relationships. We get to pour out our lives for the sake of one another in this broken world. And if the world's not a mess, then for so many of us, the message will ring hollow in our ears. The gospel is good news to those who understand that the world is broken. And that those who know that there's no lasting hope in the things of this world, the gospel can ring as the best news to an addict who's hit rock bottom, to the sinner who knows just how they've made a mess of things. That's where the good news is. Later in Mark 13, just past our reading this morning, Jesus says the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now we imagine that as some kind of end of the world melting, and maybe it is, but in the ancient world, the sun and the moon and the stars were the means of telling directions. Travelers navigated by the stars, right? They didn't get to carry around phones with GPS in their pockets like we do. 
And just imagine how many of us would struggle traveling without Google Maps. But Jesus is saying here that your Google Maps will be broken. You won't have the sun or the stars or a GPS to direct you. Rather, you'll have something new to direct you. You'll, navig you'll navigate with a new reference point. And that new reference point for the disciples and for us is the cross. But it's not the large stones of the temple. It's not the great buildings. But our new reference point is the cross. The cross is the apocalyptic event that defines all else. Because at the cross, God is fully unveiled to us. We see that God is defined by love. We see that God is the one who pours himself out for us. God does not show himself first to us through large stones of the temple, to the grandeur of this world. He does not show himself to us in wealth. But God shows himself through his son who was crucified. That's what's revealed to us. God has shown us that the driving force in this world is self-giving love. This is why the widow gives more than all the rich men in the temple. This is why the size of the stones of the temple aren't impressive to Jesus. The church is not meant to be defined by its wealth and status in this world. It was always meant to be a witness to the cross in this hostile world. And it's in this world that the cross must guide us. Because it's there and only there that the love of God is known to us. Amen.